Welcome after a long, long break. I am back. So glad that you could join me on Head on History. As for those of you who are just joining or continuing, I am Ali A. Alomi. I am the host of this illustrious and wonderful podcast. Um, as usual, let's let's dive into the social media. For those of you who don't follow me on social media, be sure to do so. You can pose your questions, you can follow along, uh, and you remain in contact with me. You can do so at uh, Instagram or Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And you can use the hashtag Head on History. Um, hopefully, you've enjoyed the time away and caught up on the first season. For those of you that are just joining, I have divided up this podcast into seasons. And so it's going to be a serial podcast. Rather than doing it every week, what we're going to do is about 10 episodes a season focusing on a topic. The first season was focused on the history of Islam, specifically providing the chronology of uh, the dates, the major events, the figures, how the religion was shaped by historical circumstance, and what were the historical developments of the Islamic world. This second season is going to focus more on the thematic elements of Islamic history. So we're going to go back. Now that we've established a sort of base and foundation, we're going to go back and focus on specific themes and ideas and how those have been shaped over the years. We're going to talk about things like the history of jihad, the history of the hijab, uh, Sharia law. What does that mean? Uh, we're going to talk about the Muslim and Christian relations, uh, Muslim-Christian-Jewish relations. We're going to talk all about these different themes and hopefully you yourselves can offer some suggestions or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover or a question you'd like me to answer we can feature them on the podcast if you uh, use social media get in hold of me and use the hashtag head on history i'd also love it if you all can uh, leave a review if you've been enjoying the podcast so far if you found it interesting uh, make sure to go to itunes and and leave us a, a rating and i'll and you know a review. I will read them out. Not this episode, but next episode as we get back into the swing of things, I will start reading out some of those reviews. So, now that we've got the salutations and, and introductions out of the way and everyone's on the same page, once again, welcome to Season 2, the first episode. What we're going to talk about today is the history of jihad. We're going to dive right in because this is a really controversial topic and one that remains pertinent to this day. What I'm going to do is divide up the history of jihad over two episodes. So episode one, I'm going to focus on the predominantly pre-modern ideas of jihad. So what did jihad mean in the early Islamic period and in the medieval Islamic period? And then in episode two, what we're going to do is talk about the modern context, the colonial experience, with jihad, and then of course uh, the contemporary, and we'll talk about how this relates to Daesh and Al Qaeda and all these other different groups. Hopefully, we'll take in with the chronology that I provided in the last season you'll have a better understanding of this concept. But I should state that this is not a history of terrorism. I know it is easy to conflate jihad with terrorism, and indeed in many modern contexts, it is seen as a form of terrorism by some specialists and experts and pundits. But this is not. This history is not going to be, you know, let's talk about various terrorist organizations. Instead, we're going to talk about theology. We're going to talk about meaning. We're going to talk about values. And we're going to talk about how they're shaped specifically um, in the Islamic world and how that comes to imbue jihad with certain meanings. 
So let's get some, some ideas out of the way. First and foremost, the best way to understand jihad in the pre-modern context, specifically in the early Islamic period and in the later period, is through a just war theory. This is first put forth by a person named Al-Farabi. If you read Al-Farabi's writing, what he does is he starts to try to rationalize jihad, not just take the kind of theological category of it as a, a prior, as just existing for eternity. No, he tries to explain what does jihad really mean, and he links it up with Hellenic theories of just war. Ibn Khaldun, the famous historian from the 13th century, in him calls jihad hurub jihad wa adil, wars of justice and jihad. So there's this idea that justice and jihad are deeply tied to one another. So I'm going to explain the, how this theory came about, how this ideology about jihad was shaped by talking about two specific time periods or two specific events that shaped it. First, the early Muslim conflicts. This is the time period of Muhammad and the Rashidun. And then the Crusades. And these together will hopefully, through a series of, of vignettes and stories, give you a better understanding of what jihad means. So, if we were to take Al-Farabi's ideas of a just war theory, then we can argue that jihad fundamentally focuses on a struggle with uh, uh, an oppressor. And indeed, the concept of a struggle for justice against an oppressor or defending against an oppressor is in the etymology of the word itself. The Quran mentions jihada, jihad, 41 times. But of the 41 times, only 10 times does it actually refer to conflict. Instead, what we see is that it usually refers kind of vaguely to a notion of struggle. Wa jihadu fi ilahi haqi jihadi, the struggle for Allah as his due. In other words, this idea is that jihad can refer to any type of struggle. And indeed, in the early Islamic period, physical conflict isn't always referred to as jihad. We have other words that refer to fighting. The Quran does mention it. It's not that fighting doesn't exist in the Quran, it does. The Quran is a very historically aware text. It talks about um, the Battle of Badr. It talks about the Battle of Uhud. It's aware of geopolitical conflicts. And this kind of shows where Muhammad was as an individual in, within the context of history. He refers to the Byzantine-Sasanian conflicts. For those of you that don't know what those conflicts are, check out our first episode of Season 1, The Red Sea Wars. But when the Quran mentions fighting, it doesn't always use the word jihad or one of the derivative words of jahada. Instead, it uses words like qital, which means conflict or fighting, or harb, which means uh, uh, war. So we don't actually see jihad used as an all-encompassing term until much later. And so the oldest interpretations that we see within the Quran, jihad means struggle. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's only an internal struggle. There's a certain apologetics that has emerged in the modern era in which people go, oh no, jihad only means internal struggle. That's not true either. Because we see that it also refers to fighting. In Surah 9, uh, verse 5, or Ayat 5 in Surah Tawbah, we find, but when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. War. But if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, then open the ways for them. 
for Allah is oft forgiving, most merciful. So there is this concept of Muslims, you should fight against the people who are oppressing you, the people who are creating corruption in society. But you should also be inclined towards peace. This is the kind of root, this verse in particular, is kind of the root of jihad as a concept. It begins to be uh, explained in later theology, but they draw from this moment, this idea that, yeah, you can fight, you're allowed to defend yourself, you're allowed to fight against oppression, but at the end of the day, you should be inclined towards making peace and diplomacy. To understand this, you need to understand the historical context. Islam rose in the context of the Red Sea Wars, of battles between the Byzantines and the Sasanians. War and tribal conflict was the norm of Arabian society. It saw that sort of tribal conflict in the back and forth, the shifting alliances of the various Arab tribes. In other words, jihad is a response to the in the kind of incessant, never-ending conflict of the Arabian Peninsula. It sees uh, jihad, it sees that particular act as a way of putting that conflict to an end, of fighting back against that and creating some form of social cohesion. And indeed, the early experiences of Muhammad, there is no concept of fighting back. In, in his experience in Mecca, he's told to have what's known as sabr, that is patience, a kind of deep-seated patience, one that recognizes the difficulties of the world but doesn't allow yourself to become despondent or giving in to rash accent. Uh, action. Sabr is, is, is patience, in other words. But it isn't until he comes to Medina, when he is driven out of Mecca during the Hijra, and he goes to Yathrib, which eventually becomes known as Medina, suddenly you start to see this new idea emerge, and that is jihad, or at least uh, some early example of it. It may not have been called jihad, it might have been called something else, like a ghazi or a harb or anything. But the idea was that the new community in Medina was vulnerable, and that the Quraysh tribe in Mecca still remained dominant and had power over a lot of the other Muslims that didn't migrate to Medina, that had remained in Mecca. And so jihad was a way of protecting the nascent community, to fight in order to ensure that oppression did not happen, so that inequality did not persist. And the first real example of this actually is in southern Arabia, um, and the Qurayshi and the Medinans Muslims meet at this well, and they don't even fight. They actually just throw battle verses at each other. That's right. The very first case of jihad, of defending the community, ends in a frickin' pre-modern rap battle. It's kind of those weird moments of history, but it's true. These two people, these two groups, decided that they were going to shout poetry at each other. And it was like this great, fantastic, weird, absurd moment of history. They don't actually come to conflict until much later. In 624, in the Battle of Badr, what happens is that Muhammad had been building up his forces trying to protect his community. This involved fighting against the various caravans um, that the Meccans had in order to provide for the Medinans who had been cut off from trade and etc. And so the two forces decided that they were going to fight it out. And the Medinans and the forces of Muhammad marched 
on this well in the middle of the desert known in Badr. And the Quraysh sent their forces. Now, the Meccans, the Meccans had a pretty vast army, but they were reluctant to fight. One, they were comfortable taking on Muhammad, but Muhammad had found new allies in the Medinans. And they didn't want to fight the Medinans. They didn't want to fight these new tribes because that would start a whole new cycle of, of blood feuds. But they did want to take on the Muslims themselves. On the other hand, you had Muhammad who had a smaller army. Indeed, they mentioned that they only had two horses and maybe 70 camels or something like that. Um, but they were all very eager to defend the community. And they were united by a single um, kind of cause. And that is this cause of fighting against oppression. These are people who had been persecuted for years. And now we're having an opportunity to turn the tide of that persecution. When these two forces met on the field of Badr, um, they didn't immediately go to war. They started to hurl insults at one another. And then sent forth three champions from either side. On the side of the Muslims was Hamza, Ali, and Ubaidah. And these three forces, these three individuals were considered kind of the chief fighters of the of the Muslim army. Hamza was Muhammad's older relative. He was a, a powerful warrior and hunter who was known kind of for his fierceness. He had this reputation of kind of being a lion. Ali, who was the cousin of, of Muhammad and eventually later on would become the fourth Khalif. You can learn more about the history of that Khalifate in my uh, season one. But Ali is uh, was also a very famous warrior. He actually had a sword known Zulfakar, uh, which translates roughly to kind of hair cutter or hair splitter. The idea being that it was two-pronged, that this was uh, had two blades, that the blade split, so it was a very famous sword. And Ubaidah, and Ubaidah was actually one of the chiefs of the Medinans. And so you see that there was this kind of coalition, both people who had followed Muhammad from Mecca and people who would now become his allies. They were able to defeat their uh, Meccan and Qurayshi uh, opponents very easily. Only Ubaidah got a little injured, but they conquered it. This led to all-out fighting. The two forces met, they threw rocks at each other, they flung arrows at each other. Then, within a short period of time, not even not even an hour, the Qurayshi ran. They turned tail and they ran back to Mecca. Now, it's, uh, later Muslim theologians, and even in the Quran itself, really talk about the Battle of Badr as this moment when even the angels came down from heaven and cast fear into the hearts of the Quraysh. So it was a turning point in this moment. It was a stunning victory for Muhammad and also cemented his leadership. Up until this point, people were really unsure. Yeah, he had made a lot of alliances, but people weren't ready to abandon the old Qurayshi elite for this new guy who was claiming to be a prophet of God. But this moment, people were like, oh shit, you can't mess with Muhammad. If you go up against him, you could get your ass handed to you. So they started to take him more seriously. Now, what's interesting is that the Mecca, the Medinans, the Muslims, did take some prisoners. And the prisoners actually wrote about their experience. They, they wrote that they made us ride while they themselves walked. They gave us wheaten bread to eat when there was little of it, contending themselves with dates. In other words, the Muslims were very generous to the slaves that they took or the captives that they took. All of the captives were ransomed. And they did this really fascinating thing where they said, if you can teach 10 Muslims to read, you can go free. 
So they used education as a way of ransoming these people. All of the individuals were eventually freed, but most of them actually end up converting to Islam because of this kind of generous treatment that they received at the hands of Muhammad and this kind of emphasis on, on teaching people to read. It was a really kind of interesting moment and again, really bolsters Muhammad's uh, reputation. Now, this really speaks to the heart of jihad. I think this particular battle, and there's several more. There's the Battle of Uhud, which the Muslims win, the Battle of the Trench, which is kind of a, a draw, and then after that, in 630, Muhammad reconquers Mecca without any bloodshed. He negotiates peace with Abu Sufyan. But what we find in this moment is really kind of the heart and essence of jihad. That jihad is really about the integrity of the community, the religious community. When that religious community, when that integrity is attacked, jihad is then permissible. It is the act of fighting against an injustice, against a threat against the community. We have a hadith that really speaks to this. On the authority of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, may Allah be pleased with him, who said, I heard the messenger of Allah say, whosoever of you sees an evil must then change it with his hand. If he is not able to do so, then he must change it with his tongue. And if he is not able to do so, then he must change it with his heart. Or, a further hadith that goes on to say that the greatest jihad is to speak a word of truth in front of a tyrannical ruler. After the battle, Muhammad himself is reputed to have said, we have now left the lesser jihad and are entering the greater jihad. The idea being that physical conflict, the protection of the community through physical fighting is actually the least Thing, the, the kind of smallest defense you can do. That the real defense starts by living your life daily as a daily struggle to do good and to be righteous and to specifically fight against oppression. In Islam in particular, probably because Islam comes out of a minority experience, the early Muslims themselves were either orphans or lesser member of tribes who did not have the protection of their tribes, uh, slaves, women, etc. And so they were, va they were extremely persecuted. That experience ingrains within uh, Muhammad who then in turn ingrains it in the sort of Quranic principle, a sense of fighting against oppression. Oppression becomes the kind of worst thing that you can do. So you fight against that oppression and tyranny in order to protect the integrity of that community. And this continues under the Rashidun. All the early Rashidun see jihad as an attempt to stop the intertribal conflict. It's easy to see jihad is something that you do against non-Muslims, that it's Muslim versus non-Muslim, and in particular to see jihad as an explanation for the way that Islam spread, that the Rashidun Caliphates, especially under Umar, expanded the territories of the Islamic world, Arabia burst forth and conquered all these new territories, that was jihad, that was Islam spreading by the sword, but this also would be inaccurate. We find that very there's very clear examples of, of this being a coalition movement of Christian and Jewish tribes joining in with the Muslims and fighting against their own sovereigns, being the Byzantines and the Sasanians. For example, um, we know that there is a there was a tribe in, in Arabia, 
known as the Banu Judham. There's also uh, the Banu Qalbi. And both of these tribes are actually Christian tribes. And quite early on, they were allied with the Ghazanid. The Ghazanids were a kind of nascent Arab kingdom in the Arabian Peninsula who were the Fedorati of the Byzantine Empire. Fedorati basically means a representative. They were uh, uh, allies of and, and official messengers and uh, governors of the Byzantine tribe. Fedorati is the Latin word from which we actually get the word federation. So the Fedorati, the Ghazanid, the, the Ghazanid and the uh, B- Banu Judham, they were Christians. The Banu Judham had originally rejected the early message of Muhammad, but in the uh, Battle of Yarmouk, uh, which is basically uh, in, in through 636, the Battle of Yarmouk is when the Muslims basically conquer the Byzantine territories. They, everything turns. It's that big pivotal moment in which the Byzantine Empire lose it. The battle of, uh, in that particular battle, the Banu Judham side with the Muslims. So you have Christians fighting against Christians. And indeed, when we look at some of the early texts that talk about the, the kind of Futul literature, the literature of the Muslim context, they don't see this as a conflict between Christians and Muslims. They see this as a, as a sort of new tribe. They see this ummah, this Muslim ummah, as a super tribe that include Christians and Jews. And indeed, they talk about them as Ishmaelites, that is, these kind of descendants of Ishmael that have joined forces and are fighting now against the kind of conflict that has torn the tribes apart, the Byzantine and Sasanian conflict. A lot of these early Christian tribes were very much sick and tired of the the conflict that they had experienced, the constant fighting, territories like in Armenia and Syria, the Holy Land and the Levant, were switching sides on the regular, going from Sasanian hands to Byzantine hands. And so the Muslim conflicts were seen as an invitation to bring unity, to create in a community with integrity to stop that type of fighting. And this we see, uh, you know, later later Muslim thinkers are very conscious about the kind of these conditions of jihad. That is, is a sort of oppression, a fighting against oppression. That is about protecting the integrity of the community. And they would try to map out this concept, this early Islamic concept, with just war theories from the Hellenic world. Like I mentioned, the just war theory that we find in Al-Farabi, in Ibn Khaldun's concepts. This also um, is used later on as a struggle against other Muslims, Muslim rulers in particular. So jihad isn't about conquest, jihad isn't about uh, conquering the world or converting people to Islam, but about protecting the integrity of the community. The Abbasids declared that the Umayyads were false, that the Umayyads had led people astray, and so that you could rise up against them. The Abbasid revolt, these Abbasids were great propagandists. I mean, the propaganda from the Abbasid period is totally cool. Um... And, and they use that propaganda. Look at these people. They're ruling like kings. They're, we need to restore the real Islamic state again. So we're going to fight against the, the Umayyads. The Umayyads were Muslim. Now, the irony of history is that the Abbasids end up being even more rulers like kings than the Umayyads ever been. In Shiism in particular, we see that this particular kind of rebellious quality um, is rooted in that jihad. So Shiism takes on a kind of revolutionary flair that we're going to talk about later, um, especially after the battle 
Battle of Karbala and then the, the establishment of the Safavid dynasty. We'll talk about how uh, jihad and Shiism is transformed and how that leads to uh, the kind of red Shiism of Ali Shariati in the 1979 Iranian Revolution. But for now, what is important to understand is that jihad in this time period is about righteous struggle against oppression and it is done for the defense of of the community. It is not random and it's not taken up individually. It has a set of conditions that you have to follow. You have to be fighting against someone who's unjust. You cannot be fighting for the sake of fighting. You're also not fighting in order to convert people. That's not true. Instead, you're fighting to protect the integrity of the community, to protect it from corruption, to protect it from people who are trying to create tension and war and conflict. It is a sort of self-defense mechanism within Islam itself to fight against bigger forces. The conditions are laid out even in Muhammad's time. He says you're not allowed to cut trees down when you're engaging in fighting. You're not allowed to kill orphans or widows or the elderly. That you are supposed to treat anyone that is taken captive reasonably well. You are not to take livestock. So there's this whole kind of rules that that, that govern it. And we see this in Al-Amiri. Al-Amiri in the 10th century is a theologian. He writes this concept he call in his book Al-Alam bil-Manrib al-Islam which is a mouthful to frickin' say, even for those of us who study Arabic. He says that jihad is done, quote, by the state in defense of Islam. All right, so that was the kind of crazy first example of the conflict that shaped jihad. So let's do some quick rapid-fire round to break up this story a little bit. First, the word jihad is used by the media all the time. Is it just... Uh, a media issue? No. This isn't just the West, the Western media going, oh, look, those Muslims are doing jihad again. And so it's become a scary word. No, groups very consciously use the word and deploy it. So groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS do use the word jihad, but they're defining it very differently. They're using a new definition, a kind of new interpretation to attempt to kind of justify it. Because, you again, there are rules and conditions in jihad. You can't just declare jihad for the sake of it you can't just say you know what fuck it we're gonna fight these people no there is a real they have to be you have to meet a series of conditions and more often not it has to be carried out by the state a kind of legitimized state and so they they do use the word so it's not just kind of a misunderstanding by the media but unfortunately i think what happens is the media doesn't return to actual experts they don't go to historians of islam or islamic scholars or and by islamic scholars i don't mean just muslims i'm talking about people who have actually you studied Islam. They don't turn to these people and go, okay, can you explain this concept to us? Can you help us understand? Instead, they use the term in a very vague, general fashion and in some, and unintendedly kind of give credence to the language that uh, that groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh use themselves. Uh, who the hell is Jihad Jani? Well, that's a fantastic question. The Jihad Jani is this kind of famous Al-Amiriki, is a, the, a kind of an American dude, a white dude that uh, converted and then went and fought in uh, these conflicts, and he's kind of kind of famous. He's not the only American. In fact, it's a very common appellation, Al-Amiriki, the American. Um, Anwar Al-Alwaki whose name I can never pronounce properly, uh, the yem, the guy, young American who was killed by Obama in a drone strike, the one who spoke English and translated a lot of Al-Qaeda's uh, videos and cassettes into English, he was uh, also called Al-Amriki. But Jihad Johnny is just kind of this weird appellation that people have given him. I don't know, weird, kind of fucked up, 
personal history. I had a friend who will remain nameless. But whenever we went to play Counter-Strike, I think it was Counter-Strike or Halo, was it? It was Halo. It was Halos. I had to verify with my sound operator here. Um, it was Halo. We were playing Halo. And this son of a bitch, I kid you not, this, this bastard would always name himself Jihad Johnny. And so you would be in this room, this internet cafe, uh, with a bunch of people. And you wouldn't know who it was, but suddenly Jihad Johnny had killed somebody in the game Halo. And so it was, it was really insensitive use of it, but a, a kind of weird moment that I always remember. All right, next question. This seems completely complicated. It is. That's because we're talking about theology and belief and how that intersects with history. All I want you to take away from this is, look, you're not going to become experts of jihad, but if you want to become an illiterate, culturally literate individual so that you can have a real conversation with people, so you can push back against kind of false narratives and gross simplifications, is to understand that jihad is shaped by historical circumstance. That at its core, it is not merely spiritual struggle and it is not certainly only violent warfare for conversion but instead is about protecting the community in that sense jihad is no different than the other kind of communal violence that we see in late antiquity the sort of christian militancy that we see in the byzantine world the attempt to protect monks and and warrior uh, holy warriors that we see in christian byzantium that's that's not unusual you could see thomas scorsese's work on this uh, uh, violence in late antiquity brilliant brilliant work on that to see that this is really just about protect, protection of these communities who are facing constant onslaughter. And finally, what did you do in the off-season? Well, I, you know, did what I usually do, and that is be sexy. Um, in my off-season, uh, school started, so I've been teaching. I'm TAing for my advisor, actually, um, and that's been really fun, and spent most of the time finishing up some research. At one point, I made a trip to uh, Great Britain, uh, a weekend tramp. I was there for five days, six days. That was really fun. Um, went into the archives, finished up some research, uh, completed some publications, which are going to be out soon. I'll give you, I'll give that a shout out on the podcast. But otherwise, continued my intellectual endeavors while enjoying really good food, lots of Indian food. I was in a kind of Indian food mood, um, and now that's making me hungry. But anyways, let's get back to the meat of the matter. Let's talk about jihad. The next stage in jihad comes in the experience of Jerusalem. This is in the 11th century, and for those of you who who haven't listened to the first season, go back and listen to it, especially go and listen to the Crusade episode. That will help give you the context and the timeline of what we're talking about. In this time period in particular, the 11th century, in 1099, Crusaders show up on the doorsteps of Jerusalem, and it is a sort of massive, massive slaughter. We have this concept of holy war that really starts in the Christian world, and and you know they write in the in the kind of justifications of holy war. Christian writers say, "Enter upon the holy sepulchre, wrest the land from the wicked race, the Saracens, and subject it to yourself. God has conferred upon you, above all nations, great glory and arms. Accordingly, undertake this journey for the remission of your sins, with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven." This is Pope Urban II. Pope Urban II is calling for holy war, and what he does is he argues that killing. Sarah 
Saracens is the same as indulgences. So indulgences is basically where you pay money if you were rich and you could get your sins forgiven by the church and therefore skip out of purgatory and grow, go straight to heaven. You could also remit your sins through various good works by doing, you know, like 10 Hail Marys and stuff like that. So the remission of the sins through killing Saracens is the first time that we see conflict being described as holy as having a sort of religious quality, not just protecting the community, but you do this as a religious obligation in order to purify your sins. And the idea of, of kind of purifying uh, the land with blood becomes a very important concept in the Crusades. You have uh, individuals like Raymond of Ari writing, but these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon, a place where religious services are ordinarily chanted. What happened there? If I tell you the truth, it will exceed your powers of disbelief. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and the porch of Solomon, men rode in blood to their knees. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers, since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. So there is this, in, in Christendom in particular, medieval Christian, there is a very clear idea that um, violence and holiness could be entwined with one another. That holy war is fundamentally a, a medieval Christian concept, not a Muslim concept. But what we do see is that moment transforms jihad. Suddenly, Muslims intended to go, we lost Jerusalem. Now, some people didn't care, obviously. It's not like all of Islam was united. There was fractured dynasties. The Abbasids were in one area. Then there was the Umayyads were still in Cordoba. But what we see is that now there is this idea that that Jerusalem had fallen, and it had fallen because people were no longer protecting that integrity of the community. And in 1187, Salah in the Battle of Hatim is able to reconquer Jerusalem, and he's able to do so because he deploys and weaponizes jihad politically. He realizes that jihad can be a tactic a rallying point by which to bring the Muslims together. And so what he does is he starts to, and, and it's not just him, right, but for many Muslims, they start to write a genre of literature known as Faidal al-Quds, that means the praise of Jerusalem, in which this poetry starts to long for Jerusalem, talking about Jerusalem as being oppressed. Remember that key word, right? Oppressed, that it is under oppression and that it needed liberation. And for example, I'll give you a quote from one of these kind of poetries, from these poems we have mingled blood with flowing tears how can the eye sleep between the lids at a time of disaster that awaken any sleeper must the foreigners feed on our ignominy while you trail behind you the train of a pleasant life i see my people slow to rise the lance against the enemy i see the fate resting on feeble pillars this is a poem by a guy whose name is always difficult for me to pronounce, so let's see if I can pull it off. Abu al-Muzafir al-Abiwardi. He's an Iraqi poet um, who writes on the fall of Jerusalem uh, to the Crusaders. And so you have, on one hand, you have this kind of poetic writing, this longing for Jerusalem, that Jerusalem has been oppressed and that the people, there's these kind of weak pillars that are upholding the faith. Jihad was meant to preserve the integrity of the community, but here it had faith. While they're doing that, at the same time, you have 
have uh, theologians and writers like Ali ibn Tahir al-Sulami writing about jihad. So you have the crisis that happens in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is eventually retaken. In 1187, Battle of Hatim happens and Salah ad-Din conquers and re- really kind of reunites that particular region. A handful of the crusader states in Akhar and Tripoli remain, but they eventually fall as well. The remnants are these kind of ancient French or medieval French castles, crusading castles that are still there to this very day. Um, but then another kind of moment happens, and that is the coming of the Mongols in the 13th century. In 1258, they sweep through that area and completely decimate the Muslim world, uh, destroying Baghdad in 1258 and killing the last Khalif al-Mutasim. Uh, you can hear all about that history in the first season. But both of these moments transform jihad. And Ali ibn Tahir al-Sulemani, aware of the the issue of the Crusaders, even though it's already been dealt with, and really feeling the keen sting of the Mongol invasion and the destruction of Baghdad. He writes, prepare, God have mercy on you, to strive hard at the imposition of this jihad and the obligation to defend your religion and your brotherhood of Muslims with aid and support. So what enters into a jihad, what starts off as this idea of you need to, you fight in order to preserve the integrity of the community. You fight in order to fight against tyranny and oppression, a kind of pre-modern attempt at social justicing, right? Then becomes really an idea of territorial defense that laps in the defense of the community was keenly felt with the coming of the Mongols, that the failure to protect the borders led to the to the taking and seizing of Jerusalem, which was brutally put to the sword, and then of Baghdad, which was burnt to the ground. So there is this idea of jihad not just becoming an idea of, of defending the community against injustice, even if that meant your fellow Muslim ruler, if a Muslim ruler was not just, if he did not uphold the ideas of adil, justice, then he must be overthrown. That too was jihad. No, no, no. Now it was about maintaining the literal integrity of the borders. So the integrity of the community meant border protection, border security of some sort. So jihad in the post-Mongol period, and as theorized by Sulami, becomes in the Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal dynasties as protecting the community through military conflict. Military conflict that guards the borders, that pushes it back against foreign and and hostile imperial forces. But again, the key here is imperial. This is state done. It is community sanctioned. It's not an individual taking it upon themselves. It's not a suicide bombing. It's none of those things. This is a very different notion of fighting against oppression, but still there is this idea of you need to fulfill the condition of fighting against oppression at the heart of it, even though it's shaped by the historical circumstances of the Crusades and the Mongols. Hopefully that helps to explain how jihad is transformed really by its historical experience. That's where we're going to end it today. These are the two kind of vignettes I wanted to give you, two historical examples. The early Muslim conquests that we see, the early Muslim battles that we see in the Battle of Badr, and then the experience of the Crusades and the Mongols, and how both of 
them shape jihad. Next time, what we're going to do is we're going to talk more closely about jihad in the modern time period. We're going to talk about the Iranian revolution. We're going to talk about the rise of uh, political Islam and its relationship to jihad. But we're going to do a, a complete separate episode on political Islam. But just the relationship to jihad. And we're going to talk about anti-colonial violence and terrorism. And hopefully that will wrap up our uh, kind of series on um, jihad, and then we'll move on to other themes. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. This was our first episode of season two. We're getting back into the swing of things, back into the groove of things. I'm very thrilled to be back and talking about this topic with all of you. History of Islam is something that I'm uh, versed and trained in and very interested in. I'll be giving book recommendations in our next episode since both of these themes are related to one another. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful nerds.